Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Research Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Ern van Houten, Professor in Japanese Humanities at Kyushu University to discuss Capitals of Fate. Ellen's research focuses on the history and archaeology of Japan's early and frequently changing capitals from the Asuka to the early Heian period. We explore why these capitals were moved, what the criteria was when creating a new capital city, and the influences of practices from mainland Asia. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Ellen. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for inviting me and giving me this wonderful opportunity. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Yeah, of course. In line with the title of this podcast, I think it is perhaps fate that brought me to my area of expertise. (laughs) Although I mostly identify as a historian, my work on ancient Japan is heavily influenced by archaeology. And I've had this interest for as long as I can remember, but for some reason at university, I studied Oriental languages and cultures. And then when I had to write my MA thesis, this interest in archaeology resurfaced. So I decided to write about the Jomon period, which is a prehistoric period of of Japan. This was in the early days of the global internet, and online booksellers were not really a thing yet. So it was very difficult to lay my hands on recent excavation reports and other publications. And I had it was quite a challenge to get to an up-to-date thesis. So for my PhD research, even though I wanted to continue working on a topic related to archaeology, I was also keenly aware of the difficulties associated with research that relied almost exclusively on recent excavation reports published by local institutes or obscure boards of education. So I decided it would be better to shift from prehistoric to historic times and select a topic about which there were written sources as well. How I got to my specific topic then, for this I must actually give credit to my original PhD supervisor, Paul van den Broeke. Paul was an expert in Shingon esoteric Buddhism, but we also shared an interest in archaeology. And one day he had told me a story about his experiences excavating in Japan. Paul was a quite tall man, and after a couple of days digging with a shovel that was far too short, the archaeologists apparently took pity on him and presented him with a specially commissioned long-handled shovel. This, of course, led to a long-lasting bond with these archaeologists of Muko, which is a small city in the outskirts of Kyoto. In the late 8th century, the area of Muko city had actually been the location of Nagaoka, an ancient capital, and it was actually the capital that immediately preceded Kyoto. So I started reading up on Nagaoka, and it seemed like the perfect topic to me. Other than an article by Ronald Toby and some scattered references here and there, there was almost no information available on this Chinese-style capital in Western languages. And even in Japanese, it had received very little attention, except for those excavation reports. 
Paul, because of this shovel history, he had very close connections with the archaeological center. And so I thought it would be easier to get research materials sent to me and to complete an inter internship there. Also, with an abundance of written sources available for the 8th century, the topic struck a very nice balance between history and archaeology. So it was kind of exactly what I was looking for. And as an extra boon, um, the Nagaoka capital existed for only 10 years, and it was kind of the perfect delineation of a topic of research. Then I lucked out even more because in the year that I started my PhD research, Nabunken, which is the Nara Research Institute for Cultural Properties, made its database of thousands of mokkan, or inscribed wooden tablets, publicly available on the internet. The inscriptions on these tablets, the majority of which date from the 8th century, and were excavated from the sites of ancient palaces and capitals, contain information on a wide range of topics, including evaluations of government officials, various kinds of tax payments, inventory tags, and even notices about missing animals or children. So one of the most important hurdles I had faced while working on my MA thesis was cleared. So I literally had dozens if not thousands of records available on my computer in Ghent. And off I went on a fantastic adventure exploring Japan's ancient Chinese-style capitals. Excellent. So as we're talking about the many historical capitals of Japan, could you begin by telling us which cities were capitals and why the location of the capital changed so much? Okay. The first proper capitals constructed on the Japanese archipelago were the Chinese-style capitals. This is a very specific type of city that was, as the name itself says, in essence based on Chinese models. The basic form of these cities was that of a huge rectangle with two main components, a walled palace enclosure on the one hand and an urban area on the other. The palace enclosure comprised the ruler's private residence, the main government bureaus, and also a grand audience hall where various court ceremonies were held. The urban area, on the other hand, surrounded the palace enclosure on three sides. Well, there's one exception where it's also on the fourth side. And this urban area was laid out as a grid with east-west and north-south roads of varying widths intersecting at straight angles. So it kind of creates a chessboard in outward appearance. This was mainly a residential area for members of the royal family, the aristocracy, various government officials and their families, as well as commoners. It also contained some smaller government bureaus, the official marketplaces, shrines, and temples. This type of Chinese-style city was first constructed at the end of the 7th century. And over the course of the next 100 years, five more capitals laid out like a chessboard would follow. And I'll be talking a little bit about all of them. Uh, but in chronological order, the capitals are Fujiwara, Nara, Kuni, Naniwa, Nagaoka, and ultimately Heian, or better known under its modern name, Kyoto. So... The location did change. We, ha we have a total of six, but it was actually far less frequent than in earlier times. Before the establishment of these six Chinese-style capitals, scholars of ancient Japan typically speak of palaces rather than capitals. And the location of these earlier palaces, 
or centers of power would change when a new ruler ascended to the throne. The investment, financial as well as in terms of manpower and time, to construct the Chinese-style capitals made these centers of power more permanent. But political, economic, environmental, and ideological factors will prompt some rulers to relocate. The fact that ultimately there were as many as six Chinese-style capitals over the course of one century is mostly down to the decisions of two rulers. In the mid-8th century, Shomu would first move from Nara to Kuni and then from Kuni to Naniwa, only to return to the first of his capitals, Nara. And all this took place within a mere five years. Then about 40 years later, it was Kammu, uh, who moved from Nara to Nagaoka, the capital I specialize in, and then he abandoned the city after 10 years to move to the city that is now known as Kyoto. Great. So you've already mentioned how the design of the cities was influenced from China. Were any practices from the mainland Asia influencing the relocation of the capital? Um, yes, there's actually several elements of the Chinese mainland that have an influence and they apply to different capitals. So again, let's let's start at the beginning. You already mentioned indeed. So the capitals themselves, they are modeled after Chinese precedents. Um, and the construction of the very first Chinese style capital, Fujiwara, was not an isolated event. It was part of a much, much wider project in the late seventh century uh, in which bureaucratic elements from the mainland were adopted by the Yamato court, so by the court on the Japanese archipelago. I should stress that none of these were simply copied from China, but rather they were adapted to local circumstances. Over a period of 50 years or so, an entirely new bureaucratic structure, new laws and regulations, and new architectural styles were introduced. And the construction of a proper capital was just one aspect in this process. So it's, it's generally assumed by most scholars that the impetus for creating this first capital city, the actual proper city, came from the mainland. Now, interestingly, by the late 7th century, the relationship between the Japanese Yamato court and the Chinese Tang court had soured, and for about 30 years, no official diplomatic missions were exchanged between the two courts. It is exactly during this lull in, in direct contact that the Fujiwara capital was constructed. As a result, its layout deviates somewhat from what one would typically call a Chinese-style capital. Most importantly, the palace enclosure, so where the emperor resided and where the most important government structures were, was located in the center of the city rather than at its northern edge. According to Chinese ideas, a ruler ruled his uh, subjects from the north and was looking out over the south. And of course, with the Fujiwara Palace in the, in the center, that was a major deviation. It also meant that there was no main entrance gate to the city and there was no long, impressive avenue guiding a visitor to the palace. Rather, the opposite, actually. Most likely, any visitor to the palace would have approached it from the back instead of from the front. So when direct diplomatic relations were resumed around the turn of the 8th century, Japanese envoys must have realized how different their capital looked from the model they were supposedly emulating. 
Many scholars therefore assume that the main reason for Fujiwara's abandonment and the construction of the next capital, Nara, was a perceived need to have the capital look much more like its Chinese counterpart. Also, Nara may have been better suited to accommodate the still-growing mainland-inspired government apparatus that was still developing when Fujiwara had been constructed. Another aspect taken from the mainland that has to do with the location or the relocation of the capital was the concept of dual capitals, so having two capitals at the same time. The Chinese Tang Dynasty had a western capital called Chang'an, and an eastern capital called Luoyang. And already in 683, a Japanese ruler by the name of Temmu had stated that the Yamato court also should have palaces in two places. One was in Asuka, near the location where a decade later, the first Chinese-style capital would emerge, and the other was in Naniwa, or present-day Osaka. It's not very clear how well developed the second palace and the surrounding area were in the early stages, but Naniwa was definitely revived in the 720s and would function as a secondary capital for several decades after that. Then if we move a little bit further in the 8th century, a different set of practices or ideas from the mainland may have been behind the abandonment of Nara for Nagaoka. This move was executed at the command of a ruler known as Kammu, and both Kammu and his father Konin, who was also Kammu's immediate predecessor on the throne, belonged to a different branch of the royal family than all previous rulers since the establishment of the Fujiwara capital. Although one cannot entirely compare this lineage shift to the dynastic changes taking place in China, where you really have one ruling family overthrowing the other, the old ruling family, and we really see a shift in the dynasty. Several scholars, including myself, we see evidence in certain Chinese-style court rituals that Kammu performs, and these seem to indicate that he was keenly aware of this shift in, in lineage and that one reason for constructing a new capital in Nagaoka was an attempt for him to assert his power and um, kind of coming to power of, of his uh, family lineage, of his branch within the, the royal family. And then a final element of influence from the mainland that maybe I should bring up here has less to do with relocation, but actually more to do with location of the capitals. Once the decision uh, had been made to construct a new capital, it was of course important to select an appropriate site. Practical concerns such as accessibility, as well as political issues, like for example, which family controlled the area, were important, but there were other concerns as well. And we have very few details on what the specific process was, but somewhere down the line, experts in site divination were consulted to determine the site of the new capital. Site divination, also known under the more popular terms geomancy, or in Chinese feng shui and in Japanese fusui, originated in China. And the site divination process was used to select the most fortuitous location for tombs, for private residents, and ultimately also for cities. 
I see. So there's a real complicated picture going on there behind why these places are so moved around so much. Uh, but it's amazing to think there's such a direct connection with uh, the politics between the, the Japanese court and the Chinese court at the time as well. Definitely, yes. So um, when I first proposed this episode, I had suggested the title Capitals of Faith, something what you said may have had very little to do with relocating the capitals in Japan. I've learned from previous episodes that dealing with religion in a pre-modern context can be a messy topic to untangle. So with this in mind, why do you prefer capitals of fate over capitals of faith? I must admit that my suggestion of capitals of fate started off as a little bit of a poor pun. Um, and But there's, there's more than just my personal journey um, of kind of being lucky and, and being suggested, or at least in part being suggested by my former advisor to focus on a certain topic. But there's there's other reasons as well why I prefer fate over faith. Um, so for sure, the capitals were venues of a variety of rituals, and several of these were court-initiated or court-mandated. But to me, the idea of a capital of faith conjures up notions that these capitals were constructed with a clear religious purpose or belief in mind, or that their main reason for existence was the fact that they were cultic or religious centers. So yes, there were state-sponsored Buddhist temples in, in the capitals, and in some cases, even private Buddhist temples were erected within them. But there were also shrines for worship of a variety of kami or other deities, but even given this, their presence still does not mean to me that these capitals were capitals of faith. So why did I perhaps somewhat flippantly suggest capitals of fate? Um, in part because the act of building or relocating a capital determines the fate of numerous people. Population estimates vary widely, but in Fujiwara, so the earliest of the Chinese-style capitals, the population may have been around 30,000 people. In Heian, or at least at the beginning, the early stages of Heian, the last of the Chinese-style capitals, which was established exactly 100 years later, it may have been around 100,000 people. For the majority of the inhabitants, a relocation was decided far beyond their control and must have meant a considerable disruption. Even for high-ranking aristocrats, a move of capitals could have severe consequences. Even though land was distributed for free uh, and assigned according to rank and position, people were required to finance the construction of their homes themselves. In addition to strategically weakening financial power, an often cited reason for the relocation of the capitals is actually the severing of old political ties and moving to the stronghold of new men. Admittedly, there were a couple of female rulers in the 8th century, but the majority of the people in power were men. So in other words, a relocation could boost or decrease the power of certain court factions. In that sense, the decision made by a small group impacted the fate and fortunes of thousands. A second reason why I find fate more appropriate than faith is connected to the specific capital in which I specialize, the Nagaoka capital. The name itself derives from its topography. Nagaoka literally means long hill, and indeed parts of the city and the palace had been constructed on the flanks of a hill. 
in order to lay out the neat east-west and north-south oriented roads of the city grid and build the numerous houses and, and government facilities, the flanks of Nagaoka Hill had been stripped bare. Even more, there were significant differences in height, and in certain locations, the city and even the palace area may have resembled uh, terraced rice fields, in that one building was constructed on one terrace, and then the adjacent building was constructed on a terrace several meters higher. Less than eight years after the establishment of Nagaoka, this led to devastating flash floods and mud flows. So importantly, the destruction was not limited to the areas where commoners and lower ranking officials lived, but it also hit the northern part of the city, taking down, according to the chronicles, government buildings, at least one palace gate, and most likely also destroying or at least damaging the residences of high court nobles. Other reasons have been put forward, but in my book on Nagaoka, I argued that it is this environmental catastrophe, one that directly impacted the life of the most powerful, that sealed the fate of the capital, and, and Camus saw no other option to move. Repairs and drainage work to remedy the topography and to prevent reoccurrence would be too costly, and it was better to move to more level ground and, and leave the hill. In contrast to earlier relocations of the capital, there seems to have been very little opposition to this decision. On the contrary, if we are again to believe the historical records, court nobles contributed in supplying the majority of the workforce that was needed to construct the city that is now known as Kyoto and that would remain the capital for several centuries. I see, thank you. Your 2016 article of Trees and Beasts, Site Selection in Pre-Modern East Asia, you draw focus to previous scholarship, which claims that elements of the landscape were critical to relocating a capital, leading to strenuous efforts to plant the right trees to address deficiencies according to feng shui, or fushi as it's called in Japan. Your research challenges this notion, however, claiming that tree planting was done on private residences. How did the two, feng shui for residences and feng shui for capitals, become linked? Thank you. That's a very interesting question. And it, it actually results from one other of those lucky breaks. It, it originates from a, a tiny little uh, footnote and, and me trying to figure out why these specific sites were chosen and, and historians, but also archaeologists of these Chinese style capitals continue to repeat this whole idea of, of what is known as Shijin So or correspondence to the four deities. Um, so the confusion essentially originates with this specific four character phrase, this Shijin So O. As far as I've been able to trace, this specific set of four kanji, four characters, occurs only in Japanese sources, but not in Chinese or Korean sources. The four deities mentioned in, the, in this phrase, the Shijin, are the vermilion sparrow, the azure dragon, the white tiger, and the black turtle snake. And each of them guards one direction, either the front, left, the right, or the back of a site, according to the principles of geomancy or, or feng shui. 
we see this little phrase, these four, this set of four characters pop up in Japanese sources around the end of the 11th century. And what is interesting, it comes with a very specific interpretation of which landscape features are deemed ideal for a site to correspond to the four gods. The area of the sparrow should have an open plain with a stagnant body of water. The dragon should have a flowing river. The tiger should have a road and the turtle snake should have a hill. So in essence, each direction needs its very specific either natural or a man-made landscape feature. So if you happen to live in a place where one or more of these features are absent, the sources then go on to state that you can correct the landscape by planting specific numbers and specific types of trees. So I should stress here maybe once more that although the four-character sequence that is essentially correspondence to the four deities seems to have been used in Japan only, the actual practice in which these very specific landscape features, so plain, river, road, mountain, are sought after is not. I found evidence of it in manuscripts preserved in Dunhuang, which is in China, and that date back to at least the ninth century. I also found it in Korean manuals on feng shui or or pungsu, as it is called there. The only difference is that the Korean and Chinese texts do not use the same four-character phrase to describe the process. The practice exists, but it just has a different name. The problem is that somehow in medieval times in Japan, this four-character phrase and its very specific interpretation, so the the four specific landscape features came to be connected to the much earlier Chinese-style capital cities. Even though all the early and detailed manuscripts I found, whether it be in China, in Korea, or in Japan, clearly limit this practice to manuals on how to make one's private residence an ideal feng shui site. And it is only from medieval times and only in Japan that links start to be made with entire cities. So here, I think it's very important to keep in mind that depending on the intended use of a site, whether it be a full-sized city, a private residence, or even an army camp, actual feng shui, actual geomantic practice differed. Protection by the four deities was essential, but the required landscape features differed. And for cities, these were simply various mountain ranges and rivers not the specific requirement of a road to the West. It is also very difficult to imagine that the mere planting of just a few trees, and according to all the sources, the maximum number of trees that could be planted was nine, would help in protecting an entire city from the adverse effects caused by the absence of a certain landscape feature. So what I argue in that article and in a few others is that from around the 12th century, at a time when geomantic practice had spread beyond its official use by the government and had started to influence the garden design of the nobility, so the construction of their private residence and ensuring that they lived in the best possible location, um, this phrase and the very 
very narrow interpretation attached to it, started to lead its own life and was then applied retroactively to the site selection process of the Chinese style capitals. This most likely happened because even though we know that divination masters were consulted when a site for a capital was selected, and even though we know a few titles of geomancy books that were studied at court, we actually know virtually nothing of the actual practice that was followed in the 8th century. So in essence, we have a much later narrow definition of site divination practice that is used anachronistically to explain what happened when the Chinese style capitals were built. I see. Is there any explanation as to why there is no texts on the process of site divination at the time? They were not preserved. That's one explanation. We, as I mentioned, we do have a couple of titles. The problem is that many of these titles, they are similar. They will very often have in Japanese chiri or in Chinese dili, which if you translate it in modern terms, it would mean simply geography. So it's the kanji that are now used to describe geography. But we know in the past, this was typically used for feng shui, for site divination practices. And a lot of this early material has not survived, especially in, in Japan. We know masters existed. We know that they studied some texts, but then actually how the practice was executed on the ground uh, that's very difficult to, to ascertain. And, and even for China, for the early Chinese capitals, again, we know the manuals existed. We know what is written in them. Sometimes we have illustrations. Um, but then how they actually went about to determine the fortune of a site, uh, that's another question. I see. Fascinating. Thank you. Now, throughout the history of the Japanese archipelago, the longest-running capital is Kyoto, as you mentioned, which held the title from 794 right up to the Meiji Restoration and Industrialization of Japan in, in 1869. Why do we get this stability in Kyoto after so much change in location, and was the move to Tokyo a total break from the historical criteria for moving capitals? For a full answer of, of Kyoto's history between 794 and, and 1869, you should perhaps talk to Matthew Stavros, because he's, he's much more of an expert in, in the city than I am. I, I merely touched the early years of the city. But to answer briefly, the Chinese-style capitals were very expensive to construct. And in reality, not even Kyoto's grid plan was ever fully realized. Instead, the city transformed and congealed fairly rapidly around two centers, one for the commoners in the south and then another one for the nobles in, in the north. Successive fires also destroyed many important government buildings, including the Great Audience Hall, where the ruler typically met his government officials and foreign envoys. Um, and ultimately, also the palace, his private residence, went up in flames. And at some point, they were never rebuilt. So this, this clearly indicates a shift in the understanding of what was deemed essential for statecraft and court ceremonies. Also, I believe that very few of the post-8th century rulers would have had the funds or even the power 
to relocate the capital. So on another level, I'm, I'm not sure if Kyoto's long history is explained by stability. Perhaps it is just a maintaining of a status quo. Uh, by then, Kyoto was where the sovereign lived, and it was the center of, of everything associated with uh, court culture. Maybe I also must add that for about six months in 1180, Fukuhara, uh, in what is now Kobe, was the actual capital. So there actually is a slight interruption in Kyoto's alleged unbroken history as uh, the country's capital. Interesting, this move did not take place at the instigation of the sovereign, but rather it was a man by the name of Taira no Kiyomori, who would later establish the first bakufu or warrior government, who relocated the court and had the emperor to retire the emperors, the court nobles, and various government officials move from Kyoto to the Kobe area. But this capital only existed for, for six months, and then everybody went back to, to Kyoto. If you want to hear more about that, maybe you should contact Mickey Adolfson. Um, I'm sure he can tell you much more about this, this six months of, of Kyoto history or non-Kyoto history. I see. Thank you. So thank you for answering all of my questions, Ellen. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? Um, my biggest project um, at the moment <clears throat> is actually taking me forward more than a thousand years to the Meiji period and even up until the present. I am working on a social and institutional history of Heian Jingu or Heian Shrine, which is a Shinto shrine in Kyoto that was established in the late 19th century. Despite this huge jump in time, there are actually very strong connections to my earlier research in three aspects. First of all, the buildings were erected because Kyoto celebrated it 1100th anniversary. At that time, the decision was made to construct a replica, be it at reduced scale, of the audience hall and a few other buildings of the original 8th century palace of Kyoto, as it had been established by Kammu. The red and white structures you see now, if, if you were to visit the shrine, are actually those replicas, those 19th century replicas. Second uh, overlap with, with my old projects is even though this entire project of creating replicas was originally conceived as a monument, a nationwide organization backed by powerful politicians and entrepreneurs in the 19th century suggested at the very last minute to add shrine facilities to the replicas, essentially turning these replicas into a Shinto shrine. Of course, a shrine needs a deity, and it was decided that, that Kammu, so the ruler who established Kyoto, but also established uh, Nagaoka, uh, would be deified and enshrined in, in Heian Jingu. Around World War II, uh, in the 19, late 1930s, early 1940s, uh, a second emperor would actually be enshrined in Heian Jingu. Um, his name is Kome Tenno, and he was the last emperor to rule from Kyoto before the move to uh, what is now Tokyo was carried out. 
And then a third aspect of my earlier research that pops up in this project are the four deities. So it, it's all, there's also a connection with feng shui or geomantic practices. Um, the four deities protecting the directions are prominently visible at the shrine in the form of statues adorning the hand-washing basins, decorations on the lanterns suspended from the roof, the names of certain buildings, their presence on promotional material and the like. So in that sense, yes, I made this huge jump in, in time, but there are very strong roots uh, in what I did earlier. And, and you see three central elements of previous research Research actually pop up in, in a topic that is much more modern. Fascinating. I think your research around Heian Jingu is, is particularly interesting. It's a great example of how contemporary governments try and mold and shape the narrative of the past. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I hope um, one, one day when, when the book is finally finished, <laughs> maybe we can do another podcast. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you for joining me today, Ellen. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. You can find a link to Ellen's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by Zoe Shipley, graduates from our MA program in Interdisciplinary Japanese Studies, to discuss her thesis research, Reality or Fantasy? 19th Century Tourist Photography in Meiji, Japan. Zoe's research is based on a family heirloom, the Japan Album, collected by Roberts T. Road between 1877 and 1884. Made up of a collection of commercial photographs and his own work, Zoe addresses how the album highlights the difference between the reality of modernization occurring at the time in Japan, with abstractions of tradition through costume and exaggerated scenes to pander to the foreign gaze. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.